0: you uh ever prone to give up uh, sometimes we can be tempted to give up in all kinds of circumstances. It happens in all kinds of circumstances, from like the most mundane to the most significant areas of our lives. Uh, we experience this uh, just like Wednesday at lunch, right It's like oh man, it's the middle of another week it's like and I'm tired, still got the afternoon ahead of me, there's still two more days, how am I going to get through this week, and you just want to pack it up, go home, call it a day, call it a career, whatever, oh, some weeks, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, I don't, I don't think I am, uh, it can happen on bigger things, backyard projects, anyone got any of those, you started? you're like, yeah, oh, let's get this. And you still got your backyard half dug up. I got a pile of dirt from a window that was dug out, and it was, oh yeah, I'll get that. It's still sitting there. Uh, The excitement can wane, Uh, the zeal for finishing Uh, can happen in significant things too. Like the real significant things that you get into because you want to give your heart and your soul and your strength to your marriage. Your parenting. You know, we, we all remember the moment where you're standing at the front of the church and you say your I do's or your, the baby's born. It's a boy, it's a girl. I mean, for, not for me. It's always a girl for me, but for some of you, it's, a, it's exciting. And we, and we remember that, that moment and the resolve of that moment, the excitement of that moment. Let's go. But then it's, it, gets, it gets real hard, doesn't it? And, and even when it's not hard because of conflict, it's just hard because it's long. How many years have we been at this thing? And how many more years do we have to go? And how many times do we wake up and go through another day and go to bed at night and then wake up the next day and it's the same thing over and over? And the reality is the Christian life can be the same thing. It's, it's it, the Christian life really, it, it can be like, like uh, teenagers with sugar rush, right? Like you get, you know, it's like, oh, eat all the chocolate or all the candy, whatever, and you get really excited, you got all the energy, and then, and then you just, and then you, and then you crash. And, and we can sometimes be like that as Christians too. There's these high moments, you know, you go through something like Easter weekend, and there's, there's baptisms, you go to a conference, whatever it is, you get, you get the rush of the high, and this is so exciting, and then, and then there's still Monday morning to come. And then by Wednesday, you forgot that Sunday even happened. And and that can happen in the life of churches too, right? Our city is full of churches that were planted because people were excited for gospel mission and progress. And now they're just running programs. If that. They're just a shell, a hollowed out shell of what they once were, not engaged in the mission that they once had. Friends, our answer, our answer has to be, I think, in this text simply this, that we can faithfully labor to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, faithfully labor over the long haul, stay on task, stay focused, stay engaged in mission. We can faithfully labor to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth only when we're confident, confident that the kingdom has already come and that the kingdom will come. It has come. It has begun. It began with the incarnation and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it will come. It will fully come when the heavens open up and Jesus comes back to gather his own. It has come and it will come. And when we're confident in both of those, here's what I'm going to argue this morning. Very simple. Because I think this is the foundation of the Christian mission that Jesus is calling us to is that these two truths, it has come and it will come, are the two legs that are going to enable us to run. And gospel mission, or at the very least, to just keep walking, to just keep marching like faithful soldiers, engage in gospel mission, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth on these two legs of truth. The first one simply, as I said, is this, be confident. We can be confident that the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come and Jesus has all authority. The kingdom has come because the king is now on his throne. And it doesn't it, it hasn't always looked like that in Matthew's gospel, right? There's all proclamations of that from the beginning, but from the time Jesus was a baby, he's being chased around and they're trying to kill him. When he starts preaching, people are challenging him. He starts doing miracles and people are doubting him. He comes into the temple and the religious leaders oppose him. They get the Romans against him. And we've just seen in the last few chapters, they finally succeeded in putting him to death. And then in the immediate verses right before this, the religious leaders are still seeking to suppress the truth through bribery and money and money politics but the reality cannot be denied. Jesus is on his throne. All authority has been given to him. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Uh, You can translate it now. I think it'd be better if you translated it, but. The word there is it's an adversative. It's contrasting what the religious leaders are doing. So the truth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus has happened. The religious leaders are trying to hide it, but the disciples, the eleven believing it, are obeying Jesus. They've gone to Galilee like he said. So there's a clear contrast between the two groups. So the eleven Disciples go to Galilee to the mountain or into the hills, the region in which Jesus had directed them. This is where he said to go. And so this is where they go. They're obeying. I love the simplicity of verse 17. When they saw him, oh there he is. There's, there's, I just there's so many verses in the Bible i am like, can I have a little more description? <laughs> I would love to know what this moment was. But they see him, and they respond rightly. They worshiped him. We saw this already last week. The the only appropriate response to a resurrected king and savior is simply to worship. But some doubted. That's a weird way to end that verse, right? Ever do in your devotions to come across that verse and go like, huh? Um, There's a few few different ways to think about this. And the, the grammar kind of helps us, at least eliminates a few options. Here's one way this can be taken. So the the way that this is described, but some doubted, the but some could be grammatically referring to a different group. So there are the 11, and they see him, and they worship, so they respond in faith. But some others who were there uh, doubted. So this might be in reference then to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about Jesus appearing to hundreds of people at a time. So it could be that kind of a context, where there's lots of people. But Matthew's focusing on the worship of the eleven or it could be and I think this is probably the better way to take it that the eleven worship him but at the same time this word doubted is still applies to them it, now here's the thing the word that's translated here doubt is not a word that indicates intellectual dissent or questioning it, it's a word that indicates hesitation so, so I think simply what's going on is something like this they're worshiping him but they're like what in the world <laughs> This is the Jesus that we've known for years, and yet at the same time, it's not. He is so different. He is resurrected. He just appeared. Like he didn't walk up. He he, he appeared. He's already appeared a couple times to them, not included in Matthew's accounts, but in the other accounts, he's appeared in a locked room. Like he just shows up. This is still so different than everything that we've known. This, This is blowing away all the categories for processing information that they have. Here is a man who died, but was resurrected, and we're worshiping him as God. And and so there's some hesitation, and like, how do we relate to him? What do we say? Are are we still on good terms? How does all of this work? All all of which serves to help us understand that despite skeptics who would say otherwise, the first century believers, the apostles, and, and those who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus are not simply gullible, they're not just taken in by, oh, this is what we're supposed to believe. But they are people who are actually processing data in real time and trying to draw faith-filled conclusions out of conviction. What are we supposed to do? But Jesus, understanding that hesitation on their part, I love the way Matthew describes this in verse 18. Jesus, uh, in in the ESV, it says, He came to them and said, and they're shortening. There's actually three sort of verbal words that are used here. Uh, So it's Jesus comes to them and speaks to them, saying, and, and, and the point of describing it that way is he's approaching those who are doubting in, in gentleness and humility and kindness and understanding. So he doesn't wait for them to come to him. He comes to them, and he's the one who speaks first. That's always nice, right? Funny story for another time, if you haven't heard it. My wife actually talked to me first. <laughs> that helped me because I was a chicken. Uh, anyway, that doesn't matter. But the, the, reality, the reality is that Jesus comes to them, speaks to them, addressing them in their weakness, and then opens his mouth and says these words to them. And these are the words of comfort that he gives to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. These are are brilliant words, these are beautiful words. All authority. There's nothing excluded from that all. There's no trick of grammar. (laughs) There's no theological questions. It's simply all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This side of the death and the resurrection, there is no more question of the absolute sovereignty of our King, Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth. Do you remember... Um, when God created, how it was described? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when Jesus shows up and uses that same phrase, he's saying, Out of everything that's created in all of creation, nothing is exempted. All the authority in all the realms has been given to me. Now, this, in, in one sense, is not new, Right? We've seen this on earth already in Jesus' earthly ministry. Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 7 after Jesus' first sermon that Matthew records, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and at the conclusion when Jesus finishes preaching, they're marveling at his words, Matthew 7, 29, 4, he was teaching them as one who had authority. Not as their scribes, not as the Bible teachers, but one who actually could speak the very words of God. You've heard that it was said to you in the prophets and the law and the Old Testament, but I say to you, with unparalleled claims to authority, he spoke. And then he backed it up in Matthew chapter eight, after the centurion came to him the, the the Gentile centurion who came and showed faith and said, look, I understand authority because I'm in the military and I know what it means to give commands and have people obey. And so you can give commands even from a distance and you can heal my servant. And Jesus marveled at this guy's faith in his authority. And then Jesus gets on the boat with his disciples and the storm comes and the wind and the waves. And when Jesus speaks a word to calm the wind and waves, Matthew 8 and verse 27, the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? He had authority. He could speak with authority, not just speak to command people, but speak to command creation. He, he would prove not simply earthly and physical Authority, but spiritual authority in in the next chapter as a paralytic is brought to him and, and, and the man is brought to him and Jesus announces that his sins should be forgiven. Who has authority to forgive sins? They begin to question, but Jesus says, Jesus says, look, I'm doing it this way to show you my authority. So in Matthew chapter nine and verse six, he explains it this way, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, spiritual authority, the authority of God himself He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did. He had authority not just to heal, but to forgive sins, to save with the words of his mouth. He had authority on earth. And his authority on earth is not just for his lifetime, at least in the lifetime that we see him manifest in the flesh. It's not just for his generation, but his words will last until the end of time. This is what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 24. And verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth, so all that is created, same phrase, all of that will pass away. But my words... My words will not pass away. Here is unparalleled authority exercised on earth, displayed on earth in Jesus' ministry. But he proclaims not simply authority on earth, but authority in heaven as well, where our eyes cannot yet see. This is described for us as Jesus consistently calls himself through his earthly ministry as he describes himself as the son of man. And that's a reference. We've seen this again and again to this passage in Daniel 7. I want to read a couple verses from Daniel 7 for you. Daniel 7 and verse 13 says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All that we have seen teased in his earthly ministry is true because first of all and foremost is true in the heavenly realms. He is king in the heavens, and so he has authority on earth. Paul describes it this way in Philippians chapter 2. After the death and the resurrection of Christ, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The reward of his death and resurrection, the reward of his faithful labor to the end, is this, Philippians 2, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. There it is, heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. He is king on earth because he is king in the heavenly realms. This is foundational for our mission as Christians. We need to understand that we are not awaiting a day when Jesus will be king. Jesus is King, he reigns over every nation, over every government, over every person, over every human soul. So people on earth from every tribe and tongue and language, every nation, need to hear the message of the gospel. And we, all of us, need to be called to repent. Because the kingdom has come. The king is reigning And because Jesus declared that he is judge. That the one who knows the secrets of our hearts, the one who knows all of our inward rebellion and rejection of him, all of our treason, our longing for glory that only he deserves, all of our participation in the world and all of its evil, he has seen all of it and knows all of it and will call each one of us to account. He sits on the throne and he will judge and he calls us to respond. For those of us who have responded, we need to go and take this gospel message to others wherever it is that we go. And we go doing doing that knowing that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Sometimes we engage in evangelism or in, in, in trying to pray for other people as if somehow somehow my sharing of the gospel with them is an earthly thing. And, and if I can just reason with them, if I could just have sound logic, if I could just get the right opportunity, as if our battle is on an earthly plane, when in reality our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is in the heavenly realms so that what is true in the heavenly realms will be manifest on earth, but recognize that's where our king is. So that as we engage in gospel mission on earth, we need to be grounded, strengthened in this reality that our king reigns even now. So that as we go into that conversation with a friend, with a loved one, with a neighbor, we remember that we go in with our king already on the throne. That strengthens us, that empowers us for gospel mission. It doesn't just protect us, it gives us urgency. To tell others, because we know the one who is the judge, who will be the judge, is already on the throne. The authority that he exhibited in time on earth is true forever already in heaven. So we can be confident his kingdom has come. That's one leg of truth. Here's the other leg of truth that Jesus is giving us. He says this, he says, Be confident that the kingdom will come. The kingdom will come. And then he gives us this word of assurance. I will be present with you until it does. So we're living in the meantime, waiting for the fulfillment, living in the good of the reality that he is present until he comes. Jesus wants to give us not merely confidence, but comfort. So he says here in verse 20, after he gives them the commission as to what they're to go and do, verse 20, he says, behold, I am with you. I'm with you in this. It'd be easy to conceive of some reality in which Jesus, who is in heaven, Jesus, who is enthroned, Jesus, who has all authority, is far away. Jesus is scowling. Jesus is looking down. Jesus is distant, an authoritative dictator. But here's the reality. Jesus says, I, who have all authority in heaven and earth, am with you. And I'm with you always. Literally, I'm with you all the day. All the days. With you all the days until the end of the days, until the end of the age. What does it mean when Jesus says, I'm with you? This was the promise tied up with Jesus' incarnation all the way at the beginning of the gospel, right? Do you remember in Matthew chapter one, when Jesus is to be born and there's this prophecy about him and you should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he's already promised that this reality is going to continue. In Matthew chapter 18, in the midst of his church, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. He promises his presence in the midst of his people where his church is gathered. So Jesus, who's Emmanuel, has promised to be together with his people. And now again, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. What does it mean that he's with us? It's so important for us to understand when Jesus gives promises. When Jesus gives words like this, he's not simply doing it in a vacuum. This promise is the fulfillment of a pattern throughout scriptures where God promises to be with his people. Let's think about just a few examples of those for a minute, okay? So in Exodus chapter four, when Moses is being sent to go talk to Pharaoh so that God's people would be redeemed, here are the words of God. Exodus four, verse 12, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth. That's weird, right? That's that's a weird. Like I've never said to someone, I'll be with your mouth. But you you understand understand what God is doing. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Because Moses is nervous about how he's going to speak, how he's going to talk. I'm not eloquent. I don't have powerful words. What am I going to do? So he promises to be with his mouth. That is, to empower, to enable him for the cause for which God is sending him. You see this again in Deuteronomy 31, verse 5. As the people are getting set to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy one five, And Yahweh will give them, the enemies, over to you. And you shall do to them, according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For, why? How are we not supposed to be afraid? How are we supposed to be strong and courageous? Why? Because Yahweh your God who goes with you. Your God who goes with you. That's who it is who's with you. Yahweh your God. And he gives these words, he will not leave you or forsake you. His presence will enable you to fulfill the mission that you've been given as you go into the land. Joshua receives the same promise. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. You're picking up on the pattern. You have a scary task. You have to go and fulfill the mission that you've been given. And you're afraid, you don't have the ability, you don't have the power, but here's the confidence you have. Yahweh your God goes with you. Judges chapter six, pick up on the same pattern. And Yahweh said to him, to Gideon, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. For the prophets, the same promise. Jeremiah chapter one, do not be afraid of them. Why? Because I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. You picking up on this? The one who goes with them is none other than Yahweh himself. He attaches his name to his people and promises his presence with his people so that they will be able to engage and to fulfill the mission they've been called to. When Jesus says, I am with you, he doesn't just mean I'll give you warm fuzzies. Although the Lord knows we need that. He means I'm going to empower you so that you don't need to fear, but you know that I'm with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. How long? Is there a best before date on this promise? (laughs) He says always all the days. And and you can take that like different ways, right? You can take that all the days, like each one of the days. You can take that all the days, like throughout the whole of the day. And the reason he words this this way is because you're supposed to take it both ways. You're supposed to understand through this, there's a picture of ongoing presence and empowerment in each moment, in each hour, in each day, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, all the night through as you sleep. He is the one who sustains you. He is the one who is present with you. He is the one who you enables you to fulfill the mission that he has given you each and every one of the days, as long as he gives you days, as long as his church is on earth, until the day he returns. A day which he's already promised. Matthew 25, what's that day going to be? Matthew 25 and verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him. Don't read that too quickly. We just saw one angel who, who scared a bunch of soldiers to death. One angel. Jesus comes in his glory with all of his angels. Then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right. But the goats... On his left, you will be empowered to engage in faithful gospel mission until the day when there is no more need for gospel mission because Jesus returns and the whole thing is done and the judgment comes. Here, here's the thing that I want us to think about for a moment you don't feel the power. Or the promise, the fulfillment of the promise of the presence of Jesus, if you're not engaged in mission. Right? So, so if you, um, some of you are muscular, but if I came up and just randomly pinched you and your muscles or something, that doesn't feel like that much muscle because it doesn't feel that strong. It's kind of flabby. But, If you grab something to lift it, if you engage your muscles and feel them, then you feel the power. The power comes in, the strength comes in as the muscle is engaged. And in just the same way, Jesus does not empower us to do whatever we want. He empowers us. The promise of his presence for power is specific to the fulfillment of the mission. So that as you engage the mission and not a moment before, you experience the reality of the empowerment of Christ. So if you sit around kind of feeling your arms thinking, I don't know if this is going to be able to lift that thing, you'll never be able to lift that thing. But if you actually engage, you'll find whether the strength is actually there or not. And unlike my arms, the strength will be there. Because Christ is the one who will empower us. If we want power as a church, if we want the powerful presence of Christ at work in our midst, we need to ask ourselves questions like, where are we moving forward on gospel mission? Are we evangelizing are we seeking opportunities to partner in planting churches are we pursuing opportunities to send workers out for gospel mission it's only as we experience the pain of loss that we will know the gain of power the empowering presence of our resurrected christ So we've got the one leg strengthened by the reality that the kingdom has come. The other leg strengthened by the reality that it will come. So now we're prepared to actually run the race of faith, of gospel mission that Jesus has set out before us. So here's the last truth that he calls us now to be confident in in this passage. Be confident that the kingdom is coming. It is coming. Jesus is entrusting his mission to us. You might think, it doesn't look like it's coming because I don't see Jesus. But here's the reality. You do. You see Jesus in his community, in his people right now if you look around this room. What would it look like for his people to be confident that his mission is coming? It looks like a church doing what it should with this theological awareness and conviction. I read to you from Daniel chapter seven already about the son of man ascending to the throne of the ancient of days and him receiving all power and dominion and authority. I wanna read you a few other verses from that passage because it is so important for what Jesus is doing here. Daniel chapter seven and verse 18. But the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom. Wait a second, what? The kingdom, the authority, the power was given to was given to the Son of Man. But then Daniel says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Daniel goes on in verse 27, and this is being interpreted to him. And it says this Daniel 7 27 And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. That is astounding. The Son of Man receives his kingdom and then entrusts the expansion of that kingdom to his saints. Guys, that's you. The one who has received all authority in heaven and on earth has passed off the mission of expanding his kingdom to you. So, we labor to bring it now. Look, look at how Jesus describes it. He says, Go therefore, verse 19, go therefore, because all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Uh, it's, it's important to understand the grammar here. So, the main verb, the thrust of what Jesus is calling his church to, his disciples to, is to make disciples. Uh, the, the go verb, it's not really, it's not an imperative. It's a descriptive word that's attached to the make disciples. So like if I was to say, so my house, this happens a fair bit, um, uh, we, we have a number of people who are sort of vertically challenged. And so what will happen is they'll need something that's up high. And so they'll say, can you reach up and grab me that thing? Now, they don't care in one sense if I reach up. They just want me to grab the thing, right? Now, it's just because it's up high that I have to reach up. And, and, and it's the same kind of corresponding reality. So if all nations are to be reached, someone has to go. But the imperative isn't go. The imperative is make disciples of all nations. If you have to reach up to make it happen, if you have to go to make it happen, then make it happen. Because we disciples from all nations. And then he expands on that. What will that look like to make disciples, to train people, to obey Jesus? What does it look like? It looks like baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. To make disciples means you baptize them, To begin their walk and you teach them to strengthen, enable, and empower an ongoing walk with Christ. The structure of Matthew's gospel is is really interesting. I wish if we had more time, we could talk through it a little bit more. But there's this pattern in Matthew's gospel where there's a section of narrative and then there's extended teaching. So for example, just you know, in Matthew chapter one through four, there's a narrative of Jesus' birth and then his his, his beginning of his ministry as he's getting prepped for ministry. And then in Matthew five to seven, there's teaching. Same thing in Matthew eight and nine. There's, There's all this power and miracles and display of authority. And then in Matthew 10, again there's a block of teaching and so there's this correspondence back and forth between all the action and the teaching so by the time you come to the end of the gospel in Matthew chapter 28 we've just come through the climax of all the action and you're waiting for the teaching where's the teaching? but here is Jesus who says to his disciples you go and do the teaching as if to say the next sermon comes from you guys this message has to be repeated it has to be taken not just in one chapter or two chapters, but through all the days until I return. Do you get the logic? Jesus says, I- I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. That means all nations. That means all nations need to know. Everywhere where I do reign, they must be made aware that I reign. Because Jesus has authority, they must learn what Jesus commanded. And again, it's worth reflecting on Jesus' heart here, right? If if you could say what Jesus says in verse 18, you could say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then therefore, what would your therefore be? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Oh, and by the way, people just mocked you and beat you and killed you and abandoned you and sold you and betrayed you and everybody turned against you. Now you've got all power. What do you do? Therefore, Go smite them. Therefore, call down thunder and lightning from heaven. Therefore, bring judgment and wrath. What's the heart of Christ? Therefore, go and tell them. Tell them I'm on the throne. Tell them there's forgiveness in my name. Tell them I'll welcome all who come. Tell them. Tell them that there's forgiveness. I was born for this purpose. What was the prophecy? Call his name Jesus, for you'll save his people from their sins. You've sinned. You've fallen short. You've rebelled. But Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus sent the church to call you, friends, to call you to come so that you would be saved from your sins. For everyone who turns, who repents, who believes in Jesus Christ. That's the heart of Christ. All authority has been given to him. What does he want? He wants you to know the good news. He wants all people to know the good news so that they can respond, to go and to make disciples, to announce the kingdom. This is, this is, this is Jesus' method, right? Remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus begins, what does he do? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's more than simply a proclamation of truth. Hey, here's the reality. It's a reality. It's a proclamation of truth that calls you to a response, to repent, to turn, to change, to bring your life under the lordship of Jesus, so that all of life, as Martin Luther famously said, becomes an act of continual repentance. The beginning of repentance, the new start, the turning in a new way that comes with baptism. John or Matthew rather says, you're baptized into, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are entering into a new relationship, a new union. You are coming under the lordship of Jesus in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're baptized into this name to begin a life of repentance, but then you must be taught. And so the, gospel, or the disciples go to do the teaching. And notice, it's the teaching of all that I commanded. He doesn't say, go and tell them all that Moses commanded. He doesn't say go and tell them all that the prophets commanded because Jesus already told us at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 5, I came to fulfill all of that. All of that is bound up, taken up in me, brought to fruition so that the full weight, the full meaning, the full load of it now comes on us so that the fullness of all the teaching of all the scriptures comes through us through Jesus Christ. And all authority is bound up with his word. So go and take my commands to every corner of the earth. In in our marriage, there's one ongoing, well, there's more than one ongoing fight, but there's at least one ongoing fight where there's like... um a desire to simultaneously have blinds open or curtains open or blinds closed. And the argument goes something like this. If you open them, we can see the dirt <laughs> uh, where the kids have put handprints on windows or there's dust on tables or shelves or floors. We can see all the things that need to be cleaned if we allow more light in. But, but here's the reality. I, I get that on a, on a human level. Uh, here, here's, here's the reality when it comes to discipleship. The teaching that Jesus is talking about, all of he's commanded, it's letting in more light, so that the more light we let in, the more dirt we see, the more cleaning we see needs to be done, so that the whole of the Christian life is a continual letting in of more light, teaching them what I've commanded, so that now in my marriage, oh, I can see the dirt, and now in my parenting, I can see the dirt. Okay, now in my job, oh, shoot, okay, I can, I can, I can see the dirt. And as the light increases, the necessity of cleaning, of changing, of repentance increases, the, the, the option in that case is not simply to close the blinds and pretend the dirt doesn't exist, but to let in the lights so that we see the work that needs to be done. This is Christian discipleship learning to engage the truth in every aspect of my life. And this, this happens in community, it happens with people, it happens as you engage in relationships with brothers and sisters. Who can speak the truth, who can bring the light to bear on your living room or dining room? Are you engaged in meaningful fellowship? See, so here's the thing we can plan small groups, we can plan discipleship classes, we can plan all kinds of things, but the reality is that you will only benefit from those things to the extent that you give yourself to them. Outside of those things, outside of formal structures, Are there people who've been welcomed into your home? Are there people who've been welcomed into your life? Are you starting to crack the door to get into other people's living rooms? So that you can begin to bring some light and to speak some truth. So that we'll see the work that needs to be done. The cleaning, the repenting, the change that needs to happen. So, all of this happens. It, it, it happens so imperceptibly. It's like, it, it, and unimpressively. It, it, it's like a, a long drive. I remember in, in college we drove out to, um, out to the East Coast. And so, you know, you, you, you've been on, on drives, you've been on long drives. You go through these stretches that are just long and boring, right? And there's nothing impressive happening. It's just mile after mile, kilometer after kilometer, tree after tree dotted line after dotted line. And and you survive that because you keep thinking about the goodness of where it is that you're going. You're excited about where it is that you're going. The Christian life, the life of a local church, engaging engaging in gospel mission, sometimes can seem like that. So here's the reality. You come Sunday by Sunday, and there's a preaching of a sermon. Some weeks is better than others. Uh, Some weeks... We sing in the songs, you know. We we sing with more gusto than others. Sometimes um, there's people praying and they and they pray invigorated prayers, and other times we just pray and we mean it. But it's just another week, just another prayer, just another sermon, just another song, and it can seem so mundane, so unimpressive. But in all of it, in each and every. Conversation here's the reality. We're seeking to engage gospel truth with everyday life so that Christian speaks to Christian, engages with Christian, sings to Christian, speaks to Christian, prays with Christian so that together we are being built up, discipled, taught in the ways of Christ. It's all so normal. We pray, we baptize, we do church discipline, we run a kids' camp. We have a youth group. We do small groups. We have a monthly prayer meeting. Some guys are, are learning to preach, and some of them will be better than others. And you'll see that. It's all just the normal stuff of doing Christian life together, of being a church But as we're faithful, mile after mile, kilometer after kilometer, faithfully engaging the mission, doing the work that Jesus has given us to do, friends, we're moving closer and closer and closer to our glorious destination. We're fulfilling the role, engaging the task, running the race, doing the drive, all the work that Jesus has called us to continue to do, believing that somehow in the mundane, he, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, is with us empowering all of it in ways that are imperceptible to us. But just like he taught us, it's like a mustard seed. It's small. It's unimpressive. It's, it's like a little bit of leaven that you don't even see when it gets thrown in the lump. It's unimpressive. It's mundane. It's continuous. It just keeps going. But here's the thing. It works. It's what we've been commissioned for. It's what we've been called to. It's what the king of heaven has called us to engage with while we are on earth. This is how the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. As we faithfully, as his people, engage the mission that our king has given us. To make disciples of all nations. Let's pray.